0: Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no win, no fee personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1 800 Your Claim or YourClaimLawyers.com.au. Corp is coming in gold and a world record. Ian
1: Corp, the birth of a legend.
0: 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world record.
2: Paul in Test Cricket in England for Shane Warne, And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Yeah! Australia
0: have done it! Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Peter Donigan.
1: As always, a great time of the week. Great to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Well, Australia has a long and proud history in golf. We only have 11 male major champions, though, and I'm happy to say that my guest in the studio this morning is one of them. Not the most brutal putt there ever was, but under the situation, a hole probably looks like a thimble. you roar down under if this falls. And
0: does! Plus five is the lead right now.
2: And Ogilvy owns it. That was a courageous par out of that divot that he was in, the Sandfield divot. And to get that up and in from short of the green was miraculous.
1: It was one of the most storied U.S. Open Championships of recent years. And the 2006 U.S. Open Champion, Jeff Ogilvy, is in the studio with me. Jeff, good to see you.
2: Yeah, you too. It's good to be here.
1: Does that bring back memories when you hear that?
2: It does, although, yeah, it does. I mean, it was a pretty amazing time, and uh, I have scattered memories of the whole day. But the last hour, I have it's like almost photographic. I can remember every minute and every what the grass looked like under my ball and all that. So it was a, a pretty amazing time.
1: We'll talk about that in more detail later on because we'll need to devote a whole lot of time to it. It was so dramatic the finish. Uh, how's the Christmas New Year period been? I oh, know what you were doing before Christmas because there was that little event at Royal Melbourne and it looks spectacular, the President's Cup you were
2: involved. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean it's certainly my favourite event that I've ever been involved with as a professional. Um we're in, we're individual athletes and we choose to play golf because it's I think we can do it on our own and it's it's all on our own back and I think that's sort of typical of the personality of a golfer as opposed to a team sport guy. But when you do, finally, you get back into the teams, uh, you do a team thing like that, especially with 10 or 12 of the best golfers in the world. It's a, um, it's just a great feeling just being in the bus in the morning with Ernie Ells and Adam Scott and Cam Smith and uh, having a few beers after the game, and playing against Tiger Woods and all that. I mean, it's just... Um, and the crowd gets into it. It's like one of the only golf events that there's actually true passion all day for the crowd. Normally, at 72 holes, it's kind of... You creep up on like the atmosphere and the atmosphere pops up in the last hour and then it's all gone. Whereas president's Mm. cup gives it to you for four straight days from the first tee all the way to the 18th green. Um, and we're not used to that kind of level of atmosphere and pressure and tension and excitement. So it's a, it's a really cool event. A
1: little while ago, I had the pleasure of commentating on the ATP cup, which was the first staging of a, a similar type of event because it was 24 countries, national pride on the line And we saw with someone like Nick Kyrgios, who finds it very hard to be motivated as an individual. Once he steps into the team environment, he becomes a completely different bloke.
2: Historically, I mean, you'd you'd pick a guy like Ian Poulter for the Ryder Cup team in Europe, who plays, I mean, he's a a great player anyway, top 50 player, top 20 player, but he goes above his level when he plays in the Ryder Cup. He's a better golfer when he's in a team than he is individually. And we have a few of those. And you also have the guys who who aren't who go the other way they they really truly are individuals and they like it to be all on their own back and they get a bit uncomfortable I think when they are in the team environment there's they the pressure weighs them down or something they'd rather just be individuals but um it's 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 great observing golf under that level of pressure and like seeing what guys can pull off and um you see absolutely miraculous shots. Almost every time you have a team match play, there's hole outs and there's whole bunker shots and long putts and crazy stuff happens way more than an individual tournament. And you also see some really crazy bad stuff too. So it's um kind of exposes the golfers mentally a little bit and that's that's always interesting to watch.
1: Was it different being on the captaincy side of things compared to a player because you played in 2011 and then you were at Ernie's side in the recent one? What's the differences there?
2: Um, playing is obviously better because that's what we do. We play um, and you kind of, the thrill of being in that environment and with the team and part of the team is uh, pretty special. And it is it is the ultimate test of your golf game, where your golf game's at, because you won't have pressure like that. There's much more pressure in that than there would be in the last hole of the US Open, believe it or not. Um, it's a different, it's a heavier pressure because you've got all the, your country and your teammates and everybody weighing you down a little bit. Um, but as a captain, but you're always worried about how you play. Your, your week when you play is just your, your your little box how you're playing how your matches went who your partners were and you can go all week not seeing six or seven of your teammates even hit a shot because you you do your week as a player but as a captain you kind of get the overview you see everybody playing you see everybody's shots you're kind of part of the whole thing and you don't have to worry at night how your putting's going or how you're swinging it or um you can just go out and try to keep everybody happy and without having to worry about, not worry about your golf game, but you're always, golf is that sort of game. You're always thinking about how to do it better. And when you're not actually hitting any shots, you can kind of take a step, like separate a little bit from that and really kind of enjoy the week and uh, kind of soak up the whole thing. So I liked both. Um, Probably like playing better, but captaining is, is, I've done it twice now, the assistant thing, um, and it's fantastic. It's a brilliant uh, opportunity they give us.
1: What did you make of the whole Patrick Reed kerfuffle?
2: It's a shame, Patrick. Um, he's, he's not a bad guy. He just seems to trip over himself a little bit every now and then. He doesn't handle the aftermath of things like that very well. The um, just put the kind of the head in the sand a little bit and not realise how kind of uh, poor a thing he did the week before, or at least how poor it looked. Hmm. Um, uh, and he didn't handle it very well, which is a shame. I mean, he's a brilliant player in those sort of team matches and he's a brilliant player anyway um but it it created a fair bit of tension that week between a few different parties between the tour and because the PGA tour runs the president's cup and some of the players were thinking maybe a bit more of a stronger statement should have been made by them and um tiger had to handle a locker room inside his team that would have been quite split i would have thought well not split it would have been 12 against, 11 against one i would have thought. Um, and they played him with Web Simpson all week because Webb's the nicest man in the world. and He can play with everybody. So it was kind of an interest. It was kind of weird um, what was going on. It's it's not other sports might be used to. I think other sports when you have referees and umpires, it's part of the game to try to get one by one. You know, like footy, it's all you, you throw the arm up and you pretend to hit the ball out from under the pack and all that sort of stuff. You're trying to get away with one all the time. Golf can't work like that because it has to self police because we're all on our own out there. And you can't come in with your scorecards and say, well, I did this and I did this and have people playing under different situations or rules. So the game doesn't really function unless everybody's kind of above that. So that's why everyone takes it so personally, I think, in golf and hates it so much. Um, Would forgive a lot of things in golf, but not that. So it was a shame that it was like that. And hopefully going forward, uh, Patrick can kind of, I don't know, stop doing stuff like that or at least uh, try to improve because it just... It just ceases to make the game function properly anymore if people are doing that.
1: Can you take us behind the doors of the locker room in that circumstance? You said it would have been a split locker room or even 11 to 1. Is that something that Ernie and yourself are saying to your team? Saying, look, have a look at this. We're a unit. We're all together. These blokes are divided. They're against each other. Is that that the kind of motivational thing that goes on?
2: Yeah, it certainly helped the motivation for our team. Um, Everyone was... The guys who got to play against Patrick were pretty happy they had the opportunity to beat him. Um, And there was kind of, you'd get the telling looks from, the American guys were very classy. The whole team were very classy and they stood behind Patrick all week and they didn't throw him under the bus. And even to us outside of the media, they were really, really kind of loyal and protective of their man. But you could tell they were disappointed that they had to deal with that situation that week. Um, But it certainly added a lot of motivation. And Ernie was all class. He, he basically ordered everybody not to say anything about it, just stop talking about it, let's just make this go away, this is a golf tournament, it's not about that, let's just play. So um, he was a tremendous captain like that. He, he truly like led from the front, set a really good example for the young guys. Our team was very young, a little bit unskilled about sort of areas like that and the media can run with that really quickly um, and you can kind of get yourself in trouble. Cam had a little bit of tension that week because of a couple of things he said the week before. So... Um, Ernie was great with that, yeah. But it was great motivation. I mean, who doesn't want to beat a team with him in it?
1: You've been around long enough to have been in a an era where the Australian golf scene was pretty healthy. We had a lot of tournaments dotted all around Australia. Things have changed. Where do you see it right now?
2: Um, it's in a bit of a it's in a, it's in a bit of a lull, a low spot. Um, I don't understand economics very well, but the basics really is in 20 years ago in America, they were playing for two or $3 million and we could, we put up two or three tournaments that were one and a half two million $2 million. And we had a whole host of, uh, other tournaments around it. And this was just coming off the back of Greg Norman playing six events a year in Australia for 20 years. That was really important. I mean, we had the Pied Piper of golf Mm. playing here for, um, played here a lot and he was very, very loyal to Australia and he played a lot of tournaments and. So off the back of that, and the Australian Masters was such a great tournament um, at Huntingdale, and it had created such a tradition. We kind of lost that, and America kind of exploded with a Tiger thing, and they went to like seven or eight million dollars US a week, and we kind of floundered down, and we're down to about two or three tournaments at um, one or two million dollars. It's a uh, it's it's a tough situation. Not that it's about the money, but um, we don't have very many sort of significant events anymore. We've got the Australian Open's always going to be significant, and the Australian PGA the masters isn't on anymore. Um, so I think golf just has to kind of work out what a sort of an event can we put on that people want to go to, you know, how do we get people back to golf? Cause everybody loves golf. The president's cup is evidence that if you do it right, everybody comes and everybody loves it. And that's all anybody talked about all week. So you, you can do it. Um, I just think the administrations, there's a lot of people involved. There's management companies, there's the PGA, there's golf Australia. Um, there's a whole lot of people that need to kind of get on the same page sit down at a table and say what do we want this to look like in 20 years time and let's kind of build it build it that way as i said economically it's difficult cuz i mean the afl sucks a lot of money out of melbourne marketing so does the australian open tennis so does the grand prix so you, you you there's just a handful of companies probably that you can go to to start getting support for stuff like that and it's just it gets quite difficult
1: is there a funky version of golf that we can go to that can attract the next generation and just make it sexy again?
2: I certainly think so. Um, Team-type stuff could be quite interesting. Um, I think 72-hole-stroke play has obviously at some point it just kind of got decided that this was the best way to um, find the best golfers. Is probably the best format for the big, big tournaments, but I think there's definitely room to have more match-play style stuff. Like They have a couple of sort of Stableford Point-style things in America that seem to be... um, positively received they have a best ball tournament where cam smith won with jonas blix a couple of years ago mm-hmm. um maybe some shorter versions of the game maybe some shootouts they've, they've tried a couple of like six hole match play things where we qualify the top 24 out of 36 holes or 54 go and we have like 32 guys doing six hole match play or 24 guys doing six hole match play and it's like really really rapid and fast if you lose the first two holes you're probably going to lose and there's there's got to be something there um other than just 72-hour stroke play. Um, you never would have thought. I mean, I'm a test cricket tragic, um, and I have difficulty thinking that uh, 2020 is actually really cricket, <laughs> but I love watching it. <laughs> yeah, right? I just love watching it. I can't get enough of it. I mean, watching Chris Lynn hit the ball over the stadium 15 times in an innings is just good fun, right? You just never saw that mm. um, in test cricket. So there's certainly – and it hasn't taken away from my love of test cricket either. So I think you can – there's room for both. There's There's enough – bandwidth for both and I think golf is the same we just have to get a bit more uh, it's a very conservative sport Um, historically, traditionally the people who uh, get the power jobs in golf are conservative type guys to protect kind of the game but there's I think uh, golf takes a lot of time I think there's a a lot of things in modern society that aren't the same as before and economically to sell something maybe you have to have a more condensed kind of exciting kind of version where maybe you don't find, you don't give the Steve Smith-style golfer the room to like show he's great. He gets to do that at the Masters and the US Open and the Australian Open. But maybe there's a time for some flashy, long-hitting, all that crazy stuff or whatever that we can find a format that gets people to come, showcases how great fun golf is and just creates great events that people want to go to.
1: Let's hope we can find that format in years to come. You've touched a bit on cricket. I want to touch on footy at some stage because I know you love of the Saints and uh, we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about a lot of other things, including that famous US Open victory with Jeff Ogilvie, who is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life. Still plenty more to come. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. More with Jeff coming up after the break.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
1: Great to have your company and great to have the company of Jeff Ogilvie, the US Open champion of 2006 on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934, Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. When did you realise you could actually hit the golf ball and thought, I might be able to do something with this talent?
2: You know, I always knew I was decent um, because everywhere I would go, Dad would always, like, kind of show me off, you know, like, oh, look how my son's hitting it well now. And I was was seven or eight or nine or whatever. And I felt like I was shooting, I would hit the ball up the fairway, three shots, four shots to get to the green or whatever, and then hit it on the green and have a putt. And my scores just incrementally kept coming down and coming down and coming down. And then finally I was about 14, 15, and you start playing in tournaments. Because golf, now I think because of Instagram and the whole world is a bit smaller, Everybody knows that there's other good golfers around and you've seen it. But when I was a kid, I didn't know there was other 14 year olds who even played much golf, you know, cause I just played with dad all the time and kids were kind of, you didn't see them at golf clubs very much. Um, played a few tournaments, as like 15, 16, all of a sudden I realized I was kind of better than most of these kids I was playing in. Like, uh, And then it just gradually evolved from there. I just enjoyed the competing. Obviously when you, I was young and I was winning a few things, the more you win something, the more you want to do it. Um, and just kind of grew from there. So probably mid, 15, 16, I started realising this is actually realistic that I might be able to do this.
1: And were you dreaming of the biggest tour of them all at that stage or did you think if I can just make a success of it on home soil, that'll be enough for me?
2: Really all I wanted was to be able to play golf every day and that's all I was allowed to do. If I could do that, that was a level of success. On some level, I didn't think about it like that, but I just liked the fact that I was allowed to get up in the morning, go play golf and come home. Um, And can I keep doing that forever, please? The aspirations grew as i played well you know as i did had got some good results i, I think i won the victorian amateur and i'm like oh that's pretty good i'm like the, that's the best amateur tournament in victoria and then i'd play well in the other big amateur tournaments and i'd win a few of them and so i'll now i'm getting in the australian team and i'm like oh this is all right maybe i can turn pro and like do all right maybe i won't just survive i'll actually do all right got in a few pro tournaments as an amateur did kind of well it's like and it's just every Every time I had, I actually got more motivation out of my good weeks than the bad weeks. The bad weeks kind of, I would always feel a bit flat, but a good week, whenever I won, I was more motivated the next week, every single time. And I got onto the European tour, I think, um, straight away, which is pretty, I was fortunate. I got through two Q schools when I first turned pro, the Australian one and the European one. And I'd had a couple of guys that I'd played some amateur golf with, grew up through like Steve Allen and a few other guys, Richard Green they'd already been over in Europe for the last couple of years and I kind of followed them over there and we rented houses. I rented with them and sort of, they took me under their wing. They kind of showed me the ropes and played a lot of practice rounds with them and made a few cuts and made a bit of, made a little bit of money and it was pounds. So it was three times your money a little bit, which was fun. Um, and traveled around Europe and it's just like, wow, this is brilliant. And then just kept my card, basically, first year. Second year, I started doing quite a lot better and making some really big checks. And you make a big check, it's like, wow, I can make a bigger one next week. It's mm-hmm. pretty fun. Then got to America. Got got, uh, got through the USQ school the next year, and then it just uh, it grew from there. I mean, I always wanted to win tournaments, and I always wanted to play golf every day. And every time I would do something a little better than last time, like my level would step up, it made me want to step up even more to the next one. And then gradually, it just evolved where I was contending in some major tournaments and stuff. So uh, it was never... Life or death for me. I just wanted to play golf all the time, and it's funny. Later on, if golf ever got hard, which golf always gets hard for people at periods, it's when I was trying, when I was, when I needed to play well, I didn't play very well. Whereas on the whole build up to it, it was like this is just fun, you know. Every level up, you're not disappointed if you don't win a tournament if you've never won one, you know. But if you start winning them now, you kind of you kind of really know how good it is, and you want to do it again and. And the first time you play in a major or a really big tournament, it's like, wow, this is this is a whole other level. This is elevated. I've got to come and play another one of these. And you start playing, and then you contend in one. It's like, well, it's way more fun to do this when I contend than when I don't contend. And then just kind of built from there. The run-up is almost, it's just freedom and joy, you know what I mean? And then, then you've got something to protect. You don't really, but in your head you do. Um, it gets a little bit harder. But, yeah, I still get to play golf whenever I want.
1: That run-up takes you to 54 holes at the US Open Championship and you're in contention on that brutal, long golf course and everybody's over par. What are your memories of that final day? You said you remember everything. What are the most vivid memories? Because you made a, I think you made a couple of birdies early and then it was really hanging on after that on that tough golf course.
2: Yeah, it was. I mean, it had been a great year. I'd won the match play earlier in the year and the match play put the backstory to it. Your you match play and i you played uh, five, six guys... And I went overtime. I went extra holes on four of those matches and I made some big putts. I mean, that week I probably made 10 or 12 putts that if I didn't make, I was out of the tournament, you know, so, and you don't get them in normal tournaments. So I f- the whole year that year, I felt great under pressure because I'd had that great kind of experience in the match play and succeeded in it. So I go to Wingfoot, I'd been playing nicely since I hadn't won anything since the match play about five, four or five months later, but I'd been playing really well, contending a lot, but, um... And I didn't go there thinking I was going to win, but I played with Steve Elkington the week before at Westchester in the last round. I'm walking off the last green. We both finished, I don't know, 15th or 20th the week before. And he shook my hand. And he goes, you're going to win the US Open next week. I just know you are. But and I, that's the first time I'd even thought about winning it. Like I knew I was going it, and I wanted to play well, but I was like, oh, Elk thinks I'm playing all right. I must be playing all right. Um, but didn't really think too much of it, but it, it, it plants an idea in your head, you know. Um, so fast forward to Sunday, I was a couple back, Second last group, I was playing with Ian Poulter. Monty was a group in front, The third last group, group in front of me. And Phil was in the last group. So Wingfoot's a brutal course. The first hole is one of the craziest greens ever with the first green. So you just want to get through the first hole. And I got through the first five or six. I was a couple under par, I think, Mm. after six holes. And Johnny famously said on the telecast, well, at least now he can tell his grandkids he led the US Open at one point, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which was a very Johnny Millerism. Yeah, uh, he um,
1: said a few good things about Australians over the years, hasn't he? Paz would be able to tell you about that.
2: Oh, wow. Well, yeah, he threw Paz under the bus and then he held a five on. But, yeah. um, jo- but later in the telecast, he's saying, like, how great a shot you're hitting and you're going to win and stuff like that. So Johnny was just, it was truly just a stream of consciousness with Johnny. But, um, after six, I think I was one in front or leading. I didn't. Re- I wasn't really watching the leaderboard, but I would more with leaderboards look at the numbers, not really the names or anything. I would just kind of have a feel for where I'm at. How am I? Am, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. Am I doing pretty well? Oh yeah, I'm in the lead, so I'm doing pretty well. Um, I wouldn't really study it to see what I had to do, or how to beat. But and then after that, seven, seven through kind of 13, 14. Seven through fourteen is a bit of a blur. I know. I think I made three bogeys through that stretch but everyone's making bogeys at that point, so I'm probably back to a few over for the round then. And I'd kind of just, my lead, i just ebbed it away, and I think I was two back on the 15th tee, and Phil behind us hits this crazy shot out of the trees again. He only hit two fairways on Sunday to, like, six feet and makes birdie on 14, and I'm my head goes down and I'm whinging to my caddy on the way to the 15th thing. Oh, this was such an opportunity you kind of wasted. and Like, wow, well, I mean, this has been a US Open and it would have been great to, like, not be three back with two or three back with four to play. And he goes, what are you talking about? No one's going to par the last four holes. It was very wise, my caddy squirrel. Um, Very impressive. No one's going to par the last four holes. They're the four hardest holes in the course. Just par the last four holes. Let's just par 15. Let's hit the fairway and let's make par. And if you par the last four holes, you I, I bet you will do better than you think. I'm like, all right. And it's trying to snap me out of it. I'm like, you're right. Like, just focus for another hour and then we can go have a beer or something. So great shot in 15, like under the fairway, under the green, hit a great part, ran it over the hole, made par. 16, drove it in the heavy stuff. Now, the winged foot that year was the first year they ever graduated the rough. So for a non-golf person, the US Open used to be really narrow fairways, just a little bit of kind of short rough, and then just hay, really long, ankle deep, just hack it out with your sandwich stuff. But that was the first year they went sort of narrow fairway, a little bit of short rough, and then sort of a medium two-inch kind of rough before the real hay. They had like two or three yards of that. And all week I'd avoided the really long stuff and only been in kind of the two or three inch stuff, which was kind of manageable. You could kind of get it near the green. Whereas the long stuff, you can really only have it 50, 100 yards out of it really. Um, While 16, I hit it in the long, long stuff for the first time that week, really long, really bad. And could just, I hacked it up about 100 or so yards and I was sort of 80 yards from the green or 60 yards from the green. The pin was on the front. Hit a great pitch shot. My short game was incredible at that time. Hit a great pitch shot to four or five feet and made it for pass. I've now made two of the, pars and instead of being two back and maybe only one back and there's a couple of guys have fallen away so like Furick and Harrington they kind of messed up the last few holes too they were right there That was a great leaderboard too there was some real class up in leaderboard which was nice it's nice to look at now hmm. that you're around that sort of thing 17 I, it had my number all week and I drove it way right again into the long long stuff again two holes in a row and it was such a bad spot I could only hit it to a better spot in the rough because there was low hanging trees and I hit it about 50 60 yards up into the rough and then my third shot, I had a pretty good shot really, and it went missed the green, but it was just off the green about twenty feet with this kind of touchy little chip down the hill. So now I've got a chip for a par, and I'm one behind with five or six shots to go. I mean, I'm it's pretty much done. But it was a simple chip in that all I had to do was fly the ball a couple of feet. It was very obvious if I didn't land the ball in, a, in one little spot right in front of pretty much where I was, it was going to go off the other side of the green. It was going to be no good. So it wasn't like I had to work out how to hit the shot. It was I just had to manage to hit the shot. And I did it, popped out perfectly, and it, it went in the hole, which surprised me at the time. Um, got pretty excited. So I, now I've made par on 17. We go to the 18th tee, and there's like a 10 or 15-minute wait on the tee because... I think it's Jimmy Furick who's backed off his putt three or four times on the 18th green, as he can do sometimes. Um, and Monty had driven it right in the middle of fairway. So right at this point, Monty's one in front of me. He's at four over. I'm at five over on the 18th tee. And Phil's at four over, one in front of me on 17. And the 17th green is right next to the 18th tee. And we kind of see Phil make par because we're right there and we waited so long. And then Monty finally hits his shot. He hits his shot and he kind of puts his head down and walks up the fairway. It's a dogleg, so we can't really see where it's gone. But he always looks disappointed after every shot. Monty, yeah, Just his body language is oh. just kind of that, that kind of ugh, glum or something. So we didn't even think anything of it. We just figured he did it on the green. And I have to make birdie here to tie. That's the the only number in my head. And I hit the the best drive of my life. Uh, everyone's been missing that fairway except for me and Monty. And I hit it miles. I only had nine on into a really long hole. But it happened to be in a divot, like an old divot. Like it was probably a three or four week old divot that had had sand in it. So it had started to grow back. But um, I, for anyone who's played enough golf will realise that a ball on sand is not good because one grain of sand can completely ruin the ruin your day. Um, and I hit a really good shot and it, it was a nine on and in the air it was going straight at it and I thought I'd hit one of those. It flashed into my head. I've hit this one of those shots they're going to replay for like 50 years because it's going to go stiff. Like I really liked it. Um, but it was for two or three or four or five yards short and it rolled all the way off the front of the green. The, the 18th green at Wingfoot's kind of up in the air, five or six feet. And uh, anything short, anything that doesn't go at least four or five yards on the green, rolls all the way back off the front. And that's what happened. Um, and I got down there. and It was a really tight lie. It was like a like a little. I could either like bump it along the ground, or kind of get the 60 out and try to hit kind of a miraculous kind of spinny kind of lob shot. Which, is, which was kind of where I was at at the time. My short game, as I said, was really, really good at that point. So I kind of backed myself to hit that shot um, and it just came out magic. I mean, the uh, for guy people like us, like sometimes short game shots are more satisfying than long game shots for, for, for the pros, I think, because they're so difficult to really get them right. Um, and you can go 20 shots in a row, I could have tried that on the chipping ground and it wouldn't have come out as nicely as that one did. It just, for whatever reason, it came out so perfectly. Um and went up four or five feet past the hole, and the putt was relatively simple. Um, it was kind of right edge. It was always going to break, but it was never going to break very far. It was downhill, which is, sounds counterintuitive, but downhill putts for pressure are almost easier because you don't have to hit them very much. You can just get them going. Um, and over the putt, we'd seen... I fin- I saw when we got up to the 18th green that Monty had made double. The scoreboard was on the side of the green. We couldn't see until we got up to the green. We got up there. It's like, oh, Monty's my double. There's only one person in front of me now. If I par this second at worst and fill on 18, who knows? So I was hitting that putt with the thought um, that this is realistically probably for a playoff, this putt. Probably it might not be. Phil might make par and win the, win the tournament. But this could be for playoff. So let's pay attention. Made the putt. Um, really excited. And I really truly was walking to the scorer's hut with Poulter, patting myself on the back going, yeah, you just finished second in a major at worst. That's pretty amazing. Like, well done. Good week. Patting myself. I was completely chuffed at that point. Like I would have been fine. And we get in the scorer's hut and there's the TVs in the scorer's hut and we see Phil's carved it into the trees. And it's like, oh, well, he's still Phil. He can just wedge it out, hit it on the green. and He's still got a putt to win the tournament. He tried this crazy shot over the trees and it hit the trees and it dropped down. And as soon as Poulter and I were still doing the card, and we saw it hit the tree and dropped down and Poulter just looked at to, looked at me with some, the cheesiest little grin saying, this is going to go pretty well for you. Like <laughs> He didn't say the words, but you could just see it in his eyes. Yeah. His, um. Phil kind of made a mess and made double too. So Monty and Phil both made double on the last and I won by a shot. So amazing.
1: Did it sink in at that very moment or did it take a day or two for you to come to that realisation?
2: A bit of both. I mean, instantly it was like, wow, like this is a big deal. Um, Cause I'd played a few majors by that point and I'd seen some friends win them and like, uh, yeah, wow, this is crazy. You just won the U S open. So there was on the surface major champion. They can't take that away from you. That's incredible. But it wasn't really until later on, I had three or four weeks off. I came back to Australia, had a really nice trip and then went over to Hoylake for the British open, which was the next tournament I played, which which was the one Tiger famously one hitting iron off every tee, didn't it? And he mm. um, but I went there and the reaction and the reception and how much stuff I had to sign, and how many like stories people had from watching it on Sunday, and um, the scale of how big the majors are. It took a while for me to realize how big a deal these really are. Because um, you win a normal tournament, people congratulate you on the range next Tuesday, and then they never mention it again. This people still talk about it, um, and just this, this the the autograph hunters and the eBayers and the all of a sudden tournament directors from around the world are calling you up saying, "Come play my tournament." And, The scale of it and how many people – oh, it took me – it really took me by surprise how many people seem to, at least in America, watch the U.S. Open Sunday. They might not be golf fans, they might not do anything else, but they watch the U.S. Open.
1: Brilliant memories. Um, One of the most dramatic days in golf, and it's been great to relive it here and get all of your thoughts along the way. There were other victories too. There were victories on home soil. We might talk about those when we come back on the other side of the break. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Jeff Ogilvy on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
2: Jeff Agilbee wins his first Australian Open. Closing 69, 19 under par. What a brilliant performance. And a great feeling
1: to win your own National Open. Go alongside that US Open title as
2: well. Well done, Jeff Ogilvie.
1: The voice of Ian Baker Finch in that exclusive club, the Major Champions Club from Australia, Jeff Ogilvie is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life at Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Always good to get your name on the Stonehaven Cup if you're an Aussie.
2: Wow, yeah. I mean, I obviously that was one of the tournaments I grew up watching. I mean, that's... Kind of a major for Australians, as it should be. Um the has got I mean, Nicholas is on it six times, I think Gary players are on it six or seven, Greg's on it five or six times. Um everyone who's only won in golf at some point seemed to win the Australian Open. So yeah, it's uh that was a nice that was a good one. And I'd I'd always played well in it, but somehow never really kind of got it done, or I'd be fifth or four back, or I would always like contend but never quite play well. There was always someone who played better. But that week, I played with Scotty in the first two rounds. I just didn't miss a shot, really. I, I Actually, the first nine holes, I kind of was missing it left the whole time. But I, whenever I'm missing it left, I know I've got good golf coming, weirdly enough. And all of a sudden, on like seven or eight, I hit a couple of good shots and made a couple of putts. And it just then it was the next 63 holes. It was just I put on a clinic. It's kind of almost the best I've ever played, really, for one of those weeks where I played really, really well. Um, played with Matt Jones on Sunday, and he pushed me pretty hard. Um, but it just felt like it was one of those weeks, some weeks you just knew you all week you couldn't, you wouldn't have said it out loud, but you just knew it was your week. Mm. That one, I, for some reason, I just knew I would have been surprised if I didn't win cause I just felt comfortable with my game. And, um, I really always enjoyed playing the lakes and it just looked good to me that week and the ball was going in the hole in the green. So, um pretty special when you're open for sure.
1: So that's almost that mythical zone, Jeff, that we talk about when, when a sports person is in the zone and everything just seems to happen around you almost with a minimum of effort.
2: It really does. I mean, I didn't see if, if, I mean, obviously you you have patches of like four or five holes where you do it quite regularly. You know, you just put out of your mind or you just all of a sudden hit the ball. Great. And you just make three or four birdies in a row. And it's just like, wow, where did that come from? And then you kind of go back to normal. Um, and every now and then, on those beautiful occasions, you get it for like a whole day. And then, miraculously, a couple of times in my career, I got it for the whole week. Um, I certainly wasn't in it at the US Open. I was for those last four holes, mm. and maybe the first six holes on the Sunday. But in the middle of it, kind of, um, that would have been a more normal kind of thing. But uh, that week at the Australian Open, and there was a week at Kapalua. The tournament of champions, where just I kind of knew on the first, after about three or four holes, I was like, oh, they're not beating me this way. I can just tell. Like, you wouldn't, again, you wouldn't say it out loud and you don't really believe it, but you just have this feeling. And that just golf is easy that day, you know, and hopefully it's easy tomorrow. And when it is, it's just dreamy. I'm not sure. uh, Obviously, the psychologists, I mean, there's been books and talk and theories about how to kind of bring it about more often. But I think the irony is, or not the irony, the difficulty is the zone comes from not trying to get in it you know you you just uh you kind of back into it you know you get so into what you're doing you're just so into hitting a great golf shot that you just all you just that's what you do you hit a great golf shot you walk to the next one you hit a great golf shot you don't think about the future or the past or um and you're certainly not on the first tee saying right i'm going to get in the zone today this is my day Mm. it's certainly that's a guarantee to not get in the zone you know so it's a um it's that unique thing in sports that you see it across all sports, and I'm sure you see it through the business world too. You, um, it just seems easy for that person at that time, and it's a it's a fun place to be in.
1: Do you still get that enjoyment when you put the tee in the ground of the first tee anywhere, and you're about to start a round of golf? Do you still love the game?
2: Um, I do. I think I haven't played as much the last 18 months. I was pretty jaded a little bit. Uh, I'd been playing poorly. Um, And I just wanted to be at home. The kids were growing up a little bit and I was missing a few cool things that they were doing. And I'm like, like, what's the point of making all this money if you don't actually get to choose what you do every day? You know, That's really the point if you think about making any more than you need to just eat and survive. It's like, well, I don't have to go to play this golf tournament next week. So I didn't because I wanted to stay with the kids. So I did get a little jaded and I didn't really love golf that much at that point. The tour can do that to you because you start attaching your enjoyment level to your score. Um, which is a, a lot of people do this in golf, not just pros, but it's, it's not, you, and you see that you play with these guys and they just seem to hate golf the whole time that they play it, but they mm. keep coming back. You know, um, I was kind of there, but now I'm not, I've, I've only played a kind of a handful of tournaments the last little while. So I've been really enjoying social golf and I walk around the house with a golf club in my hand all the time, swinging it and stuff. So yeah, it's a, it's certainly a lifelong obsession. Um, but that comes in ups and downs.
1: Hmm. So what do you see yourself doing as far as playing golf from here until you can't play golf anymore?
2: I mean, I'd love to, as I said, being, being dad and a good family guy and not being in the airport and hotels all the time is a bit of a priority at the moment. Um, but hopefully I can get in some good form. My golf feels pretty, um, decent at the moment to play the, the handful. I've got enough status, I think in the world in golf, golf is very competitive, and it's hard to get in these tournaments. Even for someone like me, after a while, it's like look, like there's a whole new bunch of fresh guys who we really want to see play in our tournament. So you can take a week off, Jeff. But um, I've got enough status that I can probably get a handful of tournaments that I really like, ten or twelve, and maybe do a summer in Europe every now and then. I maybe go back to America and play a little bit, and play a little bit around the world, and play these these ones in Australia, and maybe help be a part of bring the Australian tour back to a little bit of a better spot. Um, Yeah, I'll always play. I'll always love golf, but the days of 30 in a year are kind of over, I think. Maybe Champions Tour, I would do that. We have the course architecture um, company I'm involved with, which is really exciting, which doesn't take all my time, but it takes a bit of time and I really enjoy doing it and attach a few golf tournaments there and a few golf trips with some friends and just do the school drop-offs and go to some Saints games and we'll be all good.
1: Now, I want to ask you about that. When we come back on the other side of the break, I'll talk to you about the Saints and uh, a few other things too. To close our chat with Jeff Ogilvie, it's been great to have him as our guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Tobin Brothers, a family-owned business since 1934. Our final segment with Jeff coming up after the break.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
1: Our final segment with Jeff Ogilvy on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, tobinbrothers.com.au. You said the
2: Saints. Righto, let's get down to it. When are they going to win this bloody flag, Jeff? Wow, I mean, who knows? I've been waiting my whole life. Um, <laughs> my mum was there in 66, standing in the uh, Ponsford stand. Um, yeah, I don't know. My first memories were Plugger kicking 187 that year he won the Brownlow at Morabin. I, I grew up quite close to Morabin and watched it. So I've kind of had the ups and downs, mostly downs um, with St Kilda. But the last decade's been pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the last four or five, not so good. But we had that really sweet spot with that great list of players. With I mean, starting with Rewald as the number one and then BJ and um, Cosy and Joey and all those boys. What a great team that was for a really long time. And they did well. Um, and it was a heartbreaker there, that draw. Um, against Collingwood. BJ took that big mark and it's just it just felt like the one, right? But I was kind of happy because it's like, well, now my golf, my golf year was over. That was the tour championship. So now I can get to go to the replay next week. Exciting that I got to go to the replay, but the result wasn't so good. I don't know. We'll see. I think they're building. I think some of these clubs, it's difficult. It takes a long time to... Um, create great cultures. You know, you see it all across the AFL. Really, the same clubs, the the clubs are always kind of the same. You know, Geelong's always Geelong. Collingwood's always Collingwood. Sydney's been great for 20-something years. West Coast is always great. Um, These clubs that just, Hawthorne obviously is magic. Richmond have turned it around, you know, and I feel like St Kilda could be like a Richmond-style thing. It's never going to have the supporter base that Richmond did, but they were out to sea for 30 years, you know, from the early 80s until recently. Brendan Gale comes back and the whole thing. The story's been told. Um, I feel like that is kind of – we we need the right guy or the right person or the right coach or the right football manager, which we might have there right now, St. Kilda. I mean, I like the recruiting. I like Brett Ratton. Um, we had no one on the park last year. There's a lot of injuries, kind of unlucky injuries too, you know, um, heart issues. And we had some good players playing down at Sandy and not playing. So I feel like there's – um. There's good stuff coming. It's, if anything, I mean, St. Kilda supporters are very, very hopeful usually at the start of the year. Um, and I love getting along. I love, going to, um, I love going to Marvel, Docklands. I mean, it's a great place to watch football. Um, I know a lot of those boys through that team. I play golf with, but, I mean, out all the time. And I um, really married an American girl from Houston and yeah. so did I. So we have that connection and they kind of get along really well. So I kind of get along with that era of Saint um, very well and I see them a bit. So I like to... Uh, sort of stay on the, the, like just on the outside and look in and watch St Kilda play. I mean, I'd, I would just love it for my the fans. I mean, if you were born in 1967, you haven't seen St Kilda win a premiership, you know. Um, and there's a lot of people who would really, it would cap off of their life almost, some people, because they've lived and died it and there's a lot of loyalty down there, you know. It'd be fun to see them do it. I don't think it'll be this year, but I think this year they'll be better than last year and that's all you can ask.
1: Just a couple of very quick rapid fire questions. You mentioned all those great names at the Saints. Who's your favourite player over the decade?
2: You know, I loved watching Rui play the most because of how hard he worked. He would run defenders off their feet. Um, But over the whole journey, I think Robert Harvey, watching him play, Mm -hmm. um, again, he's one of those a bit like a Dane Swan. He looks slow, but no one could catch him. No one could tackle him. Two Brownlows in a row. All
1: right. I've got two parcels in front of me here. I can only give you one of them. One of them contains a major championship in seniors golf, and the other one contains that elusive flag for the Saints. Which one do you want to take off me?
2: Flag for the Saints for sure. Yeah? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, winning a senior major would be great. That would be really nice, but that would make me happy and a few of my friends. You know, if St Kilda wins a flag, that's going to make a lot of people happy. And there's a lot of closet St good supporters out there. The southeast suburbs of Melbourne is a big area with only one sort of team, you know.
1: All of these things that you've done in golf, you're giving back as well because you've got your own foundation and it's done a lot of good work over the years.
2: You know what? We're trying... Um, Junior golf development, um, golf is an expensive sport to get to the elite level. It isn't, it's a little bit expensive to start and play golf and join a golf course and all that, but to really get to the elite level as an Australian, you have to travel a lot. Um, and that costs a lot of money and you have to kind of plant yourself in other countries and we're just trying to, and do some mentoring and help in that sense, um, kind of fill the gaps that, that golf Australia can't get involved with or the PGA. And there's lots of room and scope to kind of help out these kids and I just at the end of the day I'm a golf fan and really at the end of the day Australia is a happy place that that Monday that Adam wins the Masters or when I win the US Open Australia is happier that day offices are more productive I mean it's a good thing for the the self-esteem of the country when Australians win at anything Um and we've 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 had a great run and it would just be great to see the next generation of these kids get to continue that on and we get to watch them and make us happy every Monday morning again.
1: Those of us who love golf have loved watching you. It's been brilliant to share the last hour with you. Thanks for everything you've done for golf in Australia and uh, thanks for coming in.
2: No worries. It's been fun.
1: Jeff Ogilvie joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Don't forget, you can find out more at tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll have another great of Australian sport, same time next week. Join us then.